If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Many of the agents who played a crucial role in establishing the Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, were women. And yet, in the early days of the agency in post-World War II America, they had to fight hard for progression, status and recognition. Nathalia Holt's new book, Wise Gals, introduces us to four women so-called by their male colleagues because of their sharp sense of humour and even quicker intelligence. She joined Eleanor Evans to share stories of their lives, careers and life-threatening missions. We're talking today about your book, Wise Gals, The Spies Who Built the CIA and Changed the Future of Espionage. It's a story that encompasses double agents hunting down art stolen by the Nazis, spy missions and covert operations, all the things that make for very exciting reading. I'm sure our listeners will agree. Um, But at the centre of these tales were a number of women listeners probably haven't heard of before. So to start us off, can you tell me who were the Wise Gals? The Wise Gals were a group of women who joined American intelligence during World War II and then went on to form the CIA during the early years of the Cold War. So this is a group of women that had long careers in intelligence, working on a variety of different missions across the globe. And these are women that really believed in what they were doing. They wanted to protect national security and prevent war with the Soviets during an era when certainly it seemed as if things were going to get much worse. Um, So writing about these women was such a pleasure for me because I really got to go not only into what their careers were like um, as well, their successes as well as their mistakes, but also their personal lives. Absolutely. It all makes for fascinating reading. And if we can start um, where you just mentioned, World War II, because it was this precursor to the CIA, the OSS, that brought a lot of of these women into this world, wasn't it? 
It was. And a lot of that is due to a man named William Donovan, and he was considered the father of American intelligence. And of course, American intelligence at that time is very young, inexperienced. They make many mistakes. They're really learning from UK intelligence. And what we see is that Donovan had a vision for what he wanted the US agency to look like. And he believed that a diverse workforce would be beneficial to their operations. And so he brought in people of many different ethnicities, many different backgrounds, and also many women. Uh, And this was a big surprise to me when I was researching the book. You know, we've heard, of course, about women during World War II, but we haven't heard many stories about American intelligence officers. And so what really struck me was just how many there were. It was actually very difficult to choose the women that I profiled in this book because there were just so many to speak of. Indeed, that, that that does seem to be a striking number. And before we, we go into some of those individual fascinating stories, can I ask how progressive was Donovan in this viewpoint? How, how progressive was women's presence in these organisations, the early days of these organisations? Well, this is the 1940s, so we always have to look through things through that lens. But certainly Donovan was unusual among his colleagues. He really did believe in bringing in this diverse workforce, and he talked about it quite openly, about why he believed this would work. And, you know, I think because of this, we have these women that I profile that have such a range of different backgrounds. You have Elizabeth Sedmeyer that grew up on a reservation uh, in the Dakotas. And then you have Eloise Page, who is kind of this proper lady from a southern state. Um, And they just they came from all over the United States. They had so many different experiences. But it's really that variety in backgrounds that gave them strength in their operations. And particularly for women, they were often not suspected of being a spy. So they had this advantage. And that's something that Donovan knew they would have. And so it was a big reason why he wanted to bring women into the agency. And aside from that advantage that Donovan spotted, you mentioned their diverse backgrounds, but I think it's fair to say that a lot of what they have in common is their smarts, their capability. I wonder if we can start with Adelaide Hawkins. What can you tell us about Adelaide? So Adelaide was not the kind of woman that anyone would suspect of being a spy. She was a single mom of three. She had a high school education. And she came to the CIA and came to American intelligence during World War II when she was working as chief of the communication center. And so this is a woman who started off very early learning about intelligence, learning about codes. Um, and her real strength was being able to organize how intelligence was sent around the globe. And so she ends up having this rise at the CIA, where she designs a variety of spy gear. And one of the items that she designed that I found particularly interesting was a coded compact. So it looked kind of like any woman's compact. Um, It's simple, had a mirror inside, but when held at an angle, a secret code was revealed. And when Addie was designing things like this, she was really thinking of the women that would be using them in the field. And so she designed a variety of spy gear. And what I find so fascinating about her is that she had this very intense life that she led in intelligence that she had to keep completely separate from her personal life. So her family, her children did not know that she was an officer in the CIA. They simply thought that she was a secretary. And here she is going on these trips across the globe, and they have no idea what their mother actually is doing. 
And it it actually wasn't until I was researching this book that I was able to tell her son the wealth of different operations that his mom had been part of and the role she'd played um, in some really incredible moments in history. Right. It's so remarkable that her family had no idea. But am I right in saying that for a, for a long while, Addie wanted to travel, but she couldn't because the CIA had sort of ruled her out almost because of those family commitments? That's absolutely true. You can imagine that it was very difficult for a single mom of three to get an overseas assignment. And that's true even as her children grew older. And it was very frustrating for Addie. And it was a big reason why she joined what was called the Petticoat Panel. And so I talk quite a bit about this panel in the book. And it started in 1953. And it began when a group of women attended at the swearing-in of the new CIA director, whose name was Alan Dulles. And Alan Dulles was not new. His appointment was not unexpected. But what happened next was definitely strange and unexpected, because after his ceremony, he casually asked the group of officers that were around him whether they had any questions for him. And to his surprise, a group of women began peppering him with questions. They asked, why are women hired at a lower grade than men? What are you going to do about professional discrimination against women at the CIA? Um, and it's to Dulles's credit that although he was being hounded by these questions from women, he decided to take them in and form the petticoat panel. Now, the petticoat panel, as you can imagine, this was not a nice term. The petticoat panel was kind of a way to make fun of this group of women, but they took it very seriously. And this was a group that was determined to get equity for women in the workplace. And of course, this is the 1950s, so it's far ahead of its time. Um, but these were women like Addie who really believed in what they were doing and wanted to see women have a, more, a larger role at the CIA. And so all of the women that I profile, although they come from different backgrounds, they all take place in this panel and they become friends during the panel. Um, and it's really an important time for them because they get to share their experiences as women at the agency. And they make up these lists of all of the many discriminatory things that they have heard while working for the CIA. And it's really a bonding moment because they're able to see what it's like to be a woman at the agency. And it shows them what they need to do in the future. And so we do see with Addie, of course, that after the petticoat panel, she is then able to get an overseas assignment. And it's really, it's such a, it's such a success for her. You can't help but root for her as she finally gets this assignment that she's been striving for for so long. Definitely. A moment to cheer for sure. And something that struck me as well when reading about this panel, which opens your book and obviously is um, is covered throughout, these women, they weren't colleagues, co-workers in any sense. Like you say, they met at this panel, they were flying in from different parts of the world from these amazing operations. So this, this issue that brought them all together, it was amazing how it was affecting them in such disparate circumstances in one organisation. That's so true. You know, these are women who had very different roles. I talk a lot about Elizabeth Sedmeyer in the book. And so she came back to D.C. to take part in this panel from her operations in Baghdad. And she has such an interesting history because she grew up on a reservation and she served in World War II. She was then a secretary at the CIA and before she went to junior officer training. And so she's able to get this assignment in the Middle East. 
And what she brings to our operations is completely different than what any male officer could in that region, because what she does is form her own spy network. And she does this by going to hair salons and a dress shop. And there she makes friends with people. She just starts conversations and she learns what the women that she's speaking to, what their husbands do, what their brothers do. And when she meets one woman whose husband is an engineer who works for the Soviets in Baghdad, she immediately begins to become friends with her. And at great risk, of course, she eventually approaches this man and asks him to spy on the Soviets for the Americans. And she's able to do this not just with one man, but with several, forming this entire spy network that's operated out of a dress shop and out of a hair salon. Um, and And this network is incredibly successful. She's able to gain the secret blueprints for Soviet fighter jets uh, from the spy network. And so you can imagine how much Liz is able to accomplish, and yet she still experiences quite a bit of discrimination in her role. And so when she is coming back to D.C. for the Petticoat panel, she is bringing all of these experiences with her, um, which are different from the other women, but really complement what they are telling her. So if we'll return to Elizabeth perhaps in a moment, can we turn to Eloise Page, another brilliant figure from your book? Eloise Page has such an interesting story because she is the Southern lady. She is the woman that wears white gloves and pearls. She always looks a certain way. She is a secretary to Donovan during World War II. But after the war, she ends up rising to become the most powerful woman at the CIA. She becomes the head of scientific and technical operations. And so she works closely with Addie in being able to make spy gear. Uh, she also works with Liz and getting these and getting these secret plans from fighter jets and, and all other kinds of weaponry. Her career is just incredible and it goes on. In the 70s, she becomes the first female chief of station. And she does this in Greece. And this is a very dangerous assignment because her predecessor has just been assassinated by a terrorist group in the region. And so when she takes this position, she knows that she is truly risking her life in the region. Um, And Eloise is just what she's able to accomplish during this time is is pretty remarkable, especially because she is really laying the foundation for how further operations targeting terrorism would look like in the decades ahead. And you're, you're talking about the sort of dangerous nature of their work here, the very pivotal nature of their work at a time when tensions between nations are obviously uh, near to breaking point in some cases. How aware are they of themselves, if we can talk about them as more of a group, as groundbreakers, as, as women pushing the boundaries in this way? These are women that absolutely knew they were groundbreakers. They knew that they were pioneers in their field. And they're really bringing a lot of the operations they work on based on what they did in World War II. So in the book, I talk a lot about the difference between the espionage operations these women are part of and the many paramilitary failures that the CIA participated in, especially during the 1950s. And of course, those are all operations that have been written about many times, such as Cuba and Guatemala and Iran. There are many failures there. 
Um, and these really stand in contrast to the espionage, the classic espionage operations that these women were part of that were able to uncover military operations that the Soviets were part of, um, uncovering different weaponry, fighter jets, different bombs that they were part of. Um, and this played an important role because being able to uncover these plots was able to prevent war during some very trying circumstances. So the women were very aware of what their role was, but they also wanted to bring in the next generation of women. And what we see is that they were very effective in doing so and that the officers that they hired went on to become higher-ups in the CIA. And I was fortunate to be able to interview many of the men and women that this group of pioneers hired. Um, and they had some incredible stories to tell me about what it was like to work with these women. Um, but overall, it's because of them that we have a CIA today that is half women and that has a much greater diversity than, of course, these women could have imagined in the 1940s. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. A significant legacy for sure. Um, and can I hear more from you then on, on that point you just made on stitching together the lives and the missions of these women? Who, who else were you talking to? I guess it can't be easy surfacing a lot of these covert actions that many of the women kept secret from their own families. This was such a difficult book to research because I had to go and not only get records declassified from the CIA, but reach out to so many different uh, family members and their colleagues, as well as go into many other archives as well. So I was fortunate to get many records from the UK archives, which were important, particularly for the World War II years. But I definitely found that interviews with family members and especially their colleagues at the CIA were critical in being able to reconstruct what these operations were like, what it felt like to be in Baghdad during these very trying moments in their lives and the many sacrifices they made. So I also used the Freedom of Information Act to declassify documents with the CIA. And altogether, all of these documents and interviews really gave me a full picture of what their lives were like and the sacrifices they made. Brilliant stuff. Uh, if we can turn to somebody I don't think we've mentioned just yet, uh, Jane, is it Jane Burrell or Jane Burrell? I wasn't sure reading it. Jane Burrell. Oh, yes. She is really important to me to speak about. And I'm so glad you brought her up. So Jane Burrell was a housewife on a dairy farm when she applied to be part of the U.S. government. Her husband had already signed up for the war effort. And so she wanted to be part of this as well. And when you look at her initial application to join the war, there was a line that read, if you're willing to travel, specify occasionally, frequently, uh, constantly. 
And she had put an X next to occasionally. She was hoping for the very least amount of travel. Um, And this is not at all how it worked out. And that is truly because Jane had so much to offer. This is a woman who was educated. She went to Smith. She majored in French. She could speak multiple languages fluently. And she had traveled extensively. And so she ends up rising in the ranks very quickly. And during World War II, she is brought in as a member of X2, which is this elite group of intelligence officers. And in the book, I I speak quite a bit about the many failures the Americans have during this time and the ways that they lean on their UK counterparts. And that's certainly true for Jane. So the X2 unit that she was part of was one of the few to work directly with British intelligence. And so Jane learned quite a bit about espionage during her time in London, where she was first sent and where she received training. She then was sent to Normandy, where she took part in counterintelligence operations. So their group was tracking down German agents and then convincing them to work for the Allies. And they ended up having quite a bit of success in this. And I speak in the book about her operations with a man named Juan Frutos, who is a Spaniard who was working for German intelligence. Jane approached him with her team, and together they were able to put enough pressure on him to get them to turn and work for their side. Uh, And this was not easy because Frutos did not want to work for the Allies. He was really afraid to do anything at all, and there were many times when he just completely dropped out and tried to disappear. But Jane and her team kept tracking him down. And eventually they got him to lead the Germans with misdirection. So they had him sending these radio messages, all of which Jane wrote. And these messages told the Germans where they could find allied ships and allied troops. And of course, these were completely false. And it ended up having a significant impact on the course of the war by having these stay-behind agents that were actually working for the allies. Um, but even after the war, Jane's Jane's work continued. She decided that she loved intelligence. She ended up getting a divorce from her husband and stayed on as an intelligence officer. And at that time, there was a real fear that the Germans had hid treasure across Europe as a means to return to power. And so Jane and her team were on this massive treasure hunt all across the countryside And they ended up finding this hoard of gold in a castle in the Italian Alps after one of her interrogations. Um, It was just an incredible fortune of money. Um, They bring all of this gold back to the station and count it, and it's worth several million dollars in today's money. Um, And it was just such an amazing moment in her career. Uh, Sadly, though, Jane's career came to an end on January 6, 1948, when she was on a flight from Brussels back to Paris. And she was stationed at that time in Paris when her plane crashed. And because the CIA had been formed officially just a few months earlier, this actually makes her the first CIA officer to die in service to her country. And because of this, she should have a star on the CIA's memorial wall. However, she still does not. So this is something that I've been working towards to make sure that she gets this recognition. 
very well deserved, as we've just heard. But talking about that that recognition, then, how else, if at all, have these women and their remarkable uh, efforts, both during the war and post-war, how how were they recognised by the CIA? Did they win medals or, or orders of service, that sort of thing? Well, it wasn't easy. As you can imagine, it was much more difficult for women to receive medals and recognition at that time. I speak in the book about how their salaries were quite a bit lower than the men they worked beside. They weren't promoted as often, and their promotions were were hard won. We really see that in the book. But perhaps one of the best examples of this is Elizabeth Sudmeyer again, who was stationed in Baghdad. And in 1957, there was a coup in that country where a military power took over, the royal family was executed, and immediately Westerners were being targeted and killed in the city. The CIA office evacuated. All of the officers left immediately, except for Liz. She was the only officer to remain in the country. And she did this. She stayed undercover so that she could protect the spy network that she had built there and keep sending intelligence back to the U.S. This was a very volatile time. Um, There was a, a movement that troops should be sent to the Middle East. And in fact, President Eisenhower did send American troops for the first time to the Middle East, um, to Lebanon, after this act in Iraq. Um, And it's really thanks to Liz's intelligence, her bravery in staying in the country, even though she was risking her life, that sent intelligence back and prevented a further outbreak of war. Um, And because of this, her chief of station recommended Liz to receive this very prestigious Intelligence Medal of Merit honor. And immediately, administrators in Washington were like, no, this can't happen. No woman has ever received this. It's just impossible. And it took years. It took years of her chief of station fighting for her for Liz to finally receive this medal. And I have pictures of when she did finally get it in the book. And what's interesting for CIA officers is that while they have a ceremony and they get to hold their medal for a short amount of time, that medal is then immediately afterwards placed in a vault where they will not see it for the rest of their careers. In fact, it won't see the light of day again until after their death. Um, So it was certainly a a big moment for, for Liz to finally have recognition for the work she had done. And that medal is now... Um, in the hands of her niece, who shares her name, who's also Elizabeth. Oh, that's that's good to hear. Um, but I guess so interesting as well that 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 uh, in itself took so much fight from from presumably male station advisors to to um, fight advocate for her to receive that sort of recognition. Yes, it's just crazy when you think of it, that she could risk her life, put so much on the line, really have some close calls, which I detail in the book. And yet still, it took years of fighting for her to get that recognition. You know, there's many instances where we see the women and male officers fighting administrators in Washington. Um, But perhaps this is one of those that's just the most frustrating. You just keep thinking, how can she not receive this medal? It's just crazy. So on on that point, then, this might be a very inelegant segue, but we'll try it. Mary Hutchinson, um, she had her own sort of situation, individual. She was uh, married to a CIA agent, but she struggled to get recognition very much in her own right, didn't she? Can we hear about Mary? She did. So Mary Hutchinson had a PhD in archaeology. She was fluent in multiple languages. She served in World War II as an intelligence officer. 
But when she applied to the CIA, she was first only offered the position of a secretary. And she was outraged about this. She told her interviewer, that is a waste of my abilities. And because of this, she was then hired as an officer. But it was difficult for her because she was the wife of another CIA officer. So although she had the education, uh, the accolades, she still was put into this lower category. And so she really had to work to get recognition and to get promotion at the agency. But she had a, a very long and interesting career. After World War II, she became associated with a man named Arati. And together, the two of them decided to create the first alliance between the Americans and the Ukrainians. And of course, you have to remember that at this time, we already had these rising tensions with the Soviets. And so the thought here was that by aligning ourselves with the Ukrainians, this would create a bond that would really endure for decades and, and aid in operations in that region. Um, in Washington, we see the response to Mary's reports as very negative. They say that Ukraine lacks a nationalist mindset and that it can never really be an ally. Um, but Mary felt differently, and so she worked on this project. And what we see is there are many failures during this time. Things certainly do not go well. But eventually there are successes as well. And Mary begins having the string of double agents in Soviet Ukraine. And through them, she is able to get the plans for a biological weapons facility, as well as some other weapons facilities in the region that end up making a, a very large impact uh, on the course of the Cold War. So another hugely impressive legacy there from, from Mary. If we can return to the Petticoat panel from 1953, you've already talked about the very significant legacy, but in the aftermath of that panel, what were seen to be changing. How are these women feeling about this, this advocacy they were doing at that time? In the book, I talk a lot about the response from male administrators to the panel. And when you read through some of the quotes that were said at that time, it is just ridiculous. I mean, you have to remember, of course, that it's the 1950s. But the dismissive way that male administrators attacked the report from the Petticoat panel is incredibly frustrating. These women had spent many, many months sorting through the data, showing that women were being paid and promoted at a rate less than their male colleagues. And of course, this doesn't seem surprising to us at all today. Of course, women in the 1950s faced these issues and were not paid as well or promoted as often. Um, but what we see is that the male administrators were so against making significant changes. And so it really took these women bonding together and deciding to make changes on their own. And what we see is that after the panel, this group of women, so there is Liz, Addie, Eloise, and Mary, who are the four women that I profile in the book. All of them were part of the Petticoat panel. And after the panel, we see them really rising in the ranks and going for positions that they shouldn't be eligible, according to male administrators, but proving them wrong. And it's because of their promotions during this time that then they're able to bring in many women after them. They're able to, to change the environment and really show that women do have this critical role in intelligence that, of course, 
had perhaps Donovan had a, a longer run at the CIA, he could have shown them long before. Um, so it's it's inspiring to see how much work they did after the Petticoat panel to to try to change the agency and make it a better place for women. And in your book, you profile so wonderfully their their careers and their lives. And and forgive me if it's a, a naive question to end on, but um, can I ask why you believe the stories of these women aren't better known now? Well, I love writing about women in history because not only are their stories interesting and and different from the men they worked alongside, but so often they are ignored and forgotten. It's very common, of course, for all of the men that these women worked alongside to have many books, documentaries, much has been said about their stories. But many of the women I write about don't have so much as a Wikipedia page to their own, even though their careers were just as long and just as important. Um, So I think that by telling their stories, what we get is a perspective of history that we wouldn't have otherwise. It gives us a very different view on these critical moments in history when we see it through the eyes of a person who hasn't had a chance to have their side of the story known before. Um, And so, you know, to me, it's important to document this because it, it does give us a richer view of history. That was Nathalia Holt. Her book, Wise Gals, The Spies Who Built the CIA and Changed the Future of Espionage, is published by Icon Books and is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.